My name is Jeff. Excited to greet you this morning. Uh, if you are visiting with us, uh, which I don't know that any of you are, but if you are, there's bags in the back. Feel free to grab a bag as a welcome. Thanks for being with us. And I've said this, no one's taken me up on this, but if you're watching online and you're new to Crossview, if you shoot me an email, I'll mail you what's in the bags to welcome you. Uh, all right, I'm going to dismiss the kids. So we've got some kids already back there. If you're going to children's worship, you can go out that door. You guys good? All right. Awesome. And I will invite, we have ushers. We had some issues for service and didn't have ushers because of the weather and I think some plumbing issues too. So, so we're going to receive our offering. If, uh, if you're visiting, please don't feel any pressure to give, but this is one of the many ways that we worship God. And I'm just going to run through a couple announcements. Uh, we're kind of going to be talking about Sunday school and small groups the next few weeks. Uh, if you are new to Crossview or or even if you just have been unengaged for a while. It's a great way to reconnect. We take our community life very seriously. Uh, Sharpen is going to be starting up again next week. That's our college-aged group. Uh, and then the next two weeks, we're going to have a time in between services. So for those of you who come to second service, you, you need to come early. But if you can come around 10, 15, in the back where those little tables are, our, small, our Sunday school teachers are going to be back there. We'll kind of talk through what we're going to be covering in our classes, and we'll be starting January 23rd with those. And then the other announcement this morning is the pancake breakfast coming up January 22nd. So if you have kids interested in going to camp, you need to talk to Sarah to be a part of that. And um, if you don't, but you want to support kids going to camp, you need to work up an appetite January 22nd and eat a lot of pancakes or buy a lot of pancakes and share them with your neighbors or whatever you want to do. But this is one of the ways we celebrate our kids. So anyway, that's that. So let's pray, and we will dive in this morning. Uh, Jesus, we are so grateful for the many ways that you love us, that you meet us. Um, we're just ex- I mean, we're excited to be here. I just had a little, the response after our worship songs is, we're excited to be together, excited to worship you, and we want to hear from you. And so we invite you to speak this morning. Our hearts are ready to hear from you, Jesus. Would you teach us your ways? Um, because you are the way. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, in case you forgot over the holiday break, we are in a series. We're going to spend a year in the Gospels. So I could say Happy New Year, which I do say Happy New Year, but since we're honoring the church calendar, we know it's not the new year in the church calendar. That was Advent, right? Uh, and we are still in Christmas, which is why we still have our Christmas decorations up. There's two Sundays after Christmas where we celebrate, we look at some of the passages that look at the younger years of Jesus, the stories around his birth, and as we'll look at this morning, the only story we have of his childhood, it's, it's, a, fun, it's a fun text, I think you'll enjoy it. But we're keeping Jesus central. We're talking about how do we arrange our time, and we're trying to arrange our time, even our days, our months, the way we think about our time in the year around Jesus. And so that's what we're going to be doing throughout this year. And to get us kind of thinking about what we're going to talk about today, I thought I would talk about tacos. I was home for Christmas. I went, we just went to my mom's and came back, but I was in the kitchen that I grew up in reminiscing a little bit about my favorite meals in that kitchen. My favorite meal my mom made was tacos. I don't know why. I just, I love the taste. I think it was fun because you kind of put it together. I was not one of those kids who liked the shell. I like to 
break up the shell so they were like chips. And then I like to pour my meat on top of that. And then all the colorful bowls of vegetables and cheese. And then in our family, I'll share a little bit why, but the, the grand finale of my taco was pizza sauce and sour cream. Now, one of you laughs because it's a little odd, right? I didn't know that. <laughs> I grew up in a family with some dietary restrictions between a few family members, and so we didn't eat spicy food. I didn't know about spice until I got to college. We didn't eat spicy food growing up. So we didn't have seasoned ground beef. We had plain ground beef. And we didn't have taco sauce. We never had taco sauce. We had pizza sauce. And I remember going to one of my college roommates' house. I think a bunch of us were staying at his house for the weekend. And his parents made us tacos. I was so excited. I got my shell. I broke it up. They're kind of, why are you breaking up your shell? I like to do it this way. I make my giant mound of food. And then I start looking for the pizza sauce. It's not on the stove. It's not on the counter. It's not in the fridge. And so I turned to the mom and I said, where's the pizza sauce? (laughs) To which one of my friends says, who puts pizza sauce on a taco? And I said, well, who doesn't? Obviously, no one else puts, I didn't know this. I had assumptions about tacos. It's the only way I had eaten tacos. And then I get out into the big, bad world and I learned that nobody eats tacos the way my family eats tacos. And in a silly sense, I could say I had to reevaluate what I thought I knew about tacos, right? That's a silly story, but it kind of, hopefully it sets the table. No pun intended. I didn't say that for service. That's good. I should have planned on that. But what I want us to do this morning is to think about discipleship in our constant need. That's part of why this story is in Scripture. Our constant need to reevaluate what we think we know about Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, it wasn't a normal prep week for me because I was home in Ohio and just not in the office like normal. And so uh, it's kind of different. But, I, but I, I really, I was grateful that this was my text. I had a lot of fun with the text. We're going we're to be talking about God and flesh, the Word made flesh at the age of 12, which my son is 12 years old right now, this year is 12. So it's really fun to be thinking through Jesus at 12 when I have a 12-year-old in my house, thinking Jesus was, Jesus was this age. He was pre-adolescent at one point. This is, we know he was. It's just crazy to think about imagining Jesus at the age of 12. And I told you as we go through the Gospels this year, I'm really following the Book of Common Prayer because it's arranged around the church calendar and, I, and I, I remember looking at the passage, kind of looking ahead, you know, trying to get ahead when Christmas was coming and Christmas Eve, got a lot of teaching to do around that time. And I was like, Luke 2, 12-year-old, what am I going to preach that week? I mean, what? But as I got into it, as I was reading, I was just sitting in the text. It's just a great text to sit in. And as I was reading other authors and listening to other pastors, I just got more and more excited. This is a great text. It's a, it's a great discipleship text. Really important. So, you want to join me, we'll read through the text and then we'll kind of revisit the story. So you have a good, I want to do that throughout the gospel series that we're going to be in. It's just make sure you imagine your way into the story. Luke chapter 2 verse 41, every year Jesus's parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. So generally three times, up to three times a year, the Jews would go to Jerusalem for a festival to worship their God and to remember their past and the promises God had made and the things God had done. I mean, every family went at least once, maybe three times a year, often three times a year. Obviously, Jesus' family went 
every year as they usually did to the Passover festival, verse 42. When Jesus was 12, he's 12 years old, they attended this festival as usual. Now after the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth. But Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. He he deliberately and intentionally stayed behind. Now his parents didn't miss him at first. We'll talk about what's going on. They assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, that evening they started looking for him among their relatives and their friends. And when they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there And three days later, three days later, maybe we could say, just so we feel, I think this is some of what Luke's doing, on the third day. We say on the third day. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them. He's not teaching, he's listening to them, and he's asking questions, he's engaging with them, and and, and all who hear him are amazed at his understanding as, as he's sharing his opinions and his thoughts. And they're just marveling at his answers. They, they can't believe this 12-year-old is so in tune. Verse 48, his parents didn't know what to think. We'll talk about this too. It's one of the reasons why the story's great. It's easy to connect with this as a parent. Son, Mary says, why have you done this to us? Why have you done this? Your, your father and I have been frantic searching for you everywhere. And here we get the first recorded words of Jesus. Very first recorded words of Jesus. Why did you need to search, he asks. Why are you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? Or The Greek's kind of a little tricky here. You could translate it, in my father's house. Or didn't you know I must be about my father's business? I must be about my father's affairs. Verse 50, and this will be important as we walk through this this morning as well. Mary and Joseph didn't understand what he meant. They had trouble understanding what he was saying. Verse 51, then he returned to Nazareth with them and he was obedient to them. Again, remember this is part of what challenges your imagination. Jesus is 12 and he's like every other 12-year-old except he doesn't sin, right? He's never sinned and so he's kind of unique. He's obedient. He's a good kid. That's part of the background of the story. Jesus deliberately stays behind. What's going on? Verse 51, we'll we'll talk about this as well. Mary stored all these things in her heart. She ponders them. She remembers them. She mulls over. She didn't understand at first, and the story stuck out in her memory, and she kept going back to it, trying to understand what Jesus was trying to tell her. And then, as I said, we're going to be talking about discipleship and growing spiritual progress this morning. Even Jesus grew. If Jesus grew, how much more should we grow? Jesus, the Word made flesh, God among us, grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. So there's our story for the morning. Now we'll enter into the story and then we'll have a handful of discipleship observations this morning. We aren't told much about Jesus' childhood, probably because not much really happened. If you think about it, I think about it as a parent. When Jay has a series of good days in a row, he's pretty obedient, he's a good kid. I don't, they don't stand out to me, right? I think Jesus was just a good kid. He just did what he was supposed to do. He was obedient to his parents. He, he was just kind of a common life. It didn't stick out. This is one of the stories where it really caught Mary off guard and surprised her. He grew up learning from his father 
learning construction with his brothers. He was a carpenter, but we tend to think it was with wood, but there wasn't a lot of wood in Israel. The more I read, the more he was likely primarily like a stonemason. He primarily worked with stone. That was the material they had in Israel. You could, you could say he was sanctifying common life. He, he lived a common childhood. He grew up in Nazareth. I mean, probably less than 100 people in his village. But at least once a year, maybe three times a year, they would make a journey to Jerusalem where there would be several hundreds of thousands of people from all over Israel gathering. And it's a long trip. that You can remember they don't have highways. They don't have cars. They don't have buses. They certainly don't have airplanes. It's a several day, maybe a week's walk from Nazareth to Jerusalem. So you think about it, you, you leave, you, you, tr- you travel for a week, you spend a week in Jerusalem, and then you have another week tra- traveling home. It's, it's a three-week journey, it's a celebration, it's joyful, you're exciting, it's adventurous. But a different time, and there were real safety concerns, so you always traveled in large groups. You traveled in a caravan, that's why you did it. It kept you safe. There were dangerous people out there. You didn't want to be alone, so you traveled as a caravan. They traveled to the festival. They enjoy Passover in Jerusalem, and it's time to go home. The Nazareth caravan is ready to travel back, and Jesus doesn't join it. He goes to the temple to learn. We'll talk about what he talks about at the temple. And at some point, as they're walking out of Jerusalem, Mary and Joseph realize that they don't know where Jesus is, but He's responsible. He knew when they were leaving. Again, he's, the, he's perfect. He's, he's been perfectly obedient. They, they assume he's with his cousins. Well, he's probably with his aunt and uncle. We don't have to worry about it. Until it gets to dinner time. Yeah, we'll see him at dinner time. Well, it's dinner time. It's the evening after their first day of walking. And Mary starts to realize she really doesn't know where Jesus is. She's getting frantic, anxious. We could say that Mary lost Jesus. <laughs> she doesn't know where he is. And so Mary and Joseph, they want to rush back. And maybe they rush back immediately. I mean, we don't know. Maybe they rush back immediately and just start searching. But maybe it's nighttime. And as I said, it's not safe to travel at night. So maybe they sleep through the night. And then they have to walk the whole day journey back to Jerusalem and then begin searching. And then they go to bed and begin searching. The third day they find him in the temple. Now he's in the temple. And he's talking with the rabbis on the third day. Now, one of the things I want to do as we go through these Gospels, again, is to give you an appreciation for these authors and what they're doing, because they're brilliant. And I've said this before, Luke is the most like a historian in how he writes his Gospel. And so he's not one of the 12 disciples, and so he has sources. He has other, he's probably using the Gospel of Mark, and then he's got people, eyewitnesses that he's talking to. It's really important. Uh, the, the veracity, the truthfulness of our Gospels come from eyewitnesses. And one of his sources is Mary. I mean, it's clear. As you read through Luke, it's clear that Mary is one of the people. Luke knows things that he would not know if Mary hadn't told him. Who else can confirm the virgin birth other than Mary herself? (laughs) That's kind of personal to Mary. That's her thing. This story, obviously, it was personal to Mary. She's mauling it over. She's been pondering it. And, And Luke, you can imagine Luke sitting down, interviewing Mary, kind of taking notes. Well, the one story, Luke, that really sticks out to me was when Jesus was 12. I gotta tell you about and she's kind of just giving the details. And I, I would imagine Luke asking, how many days? Three days. So, wait, wait, Mary, you're telling me it was the third day? Oh, man, I know where this story's going. <laughs> right? He's a talented writer. Man, this is the most important story ever written. If I talk about how you lost him and then found him after three days at the beginning and at the end, oh, this is all going to come together. I think Luke's getting excited, right? 
Well, they find him in Jerusalem, and he's talking with the rabbis. He's engaging with the religious teachers. And people are astonished at, at the way he's interacting for three days. I mean, were you having three-day spiritual conversations when you were 12 years old? I wasn't. <laughs> and we don't know what they discussed. We don't, the Bible doesn't tell. We don't know. But this is one of those places where I think it's fun to press our imagination and do a little guesswork. One of the things that I really enjoy is kind of, well, this was around when I was in seminary, but I did a lot of reading about Jesus. I mean, I've just always been captivated by Jesus. And a few books, if you're interested, I'd love to recommend them to you. But there were a few books that really pressed into Jesus' self-understanding. When did Jesus know who he is? Right? He's fully God, fully man. This is part of the mystery. I mean, it's hard for me to think that when Jesus is an infant laying in the manger, that he's just laying there, I'm God, I created all this, I'm just laying here. Right? Like, I think at some point he had to kind of, and it's fun to try to, we don't know, it's a mystery. How did this unfold? What did that look like? But it's, it's, it's easy for me to imagine Jesus at 12 having, obviously, he has some sense of his unique relationship with the Father. And it's his Father. I mean, the Jews would have pl- prayed to our Father, but not my Father. I mean, this is something that Jesus taught us to pray to Abba. And you read through the Gospel of John, and maybe you get a little bit more feeling of how Jesus thought about this. I I don't know that he would have said, well, I am the one who spoke all this into existence and everything exists for me right out of the gate. But he was starting to have a sense that I do what the Father says. That I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And he's starting to have a sense that that he's he's got a unique calling and vocation and what's going to happen for the people of the world, for the people of Israel and the Gentiles too. And I can imagine. Because remember... I mean, you, you probably, I mean, you, you guys are really spiritual. You probably have like 25 Bibles at home, right? And you've probably downloaded like seven different versions on your cell phone. You've got Bibles everywhere. Jesus didn't have a Bible. I know it's crazy to think about, but the Word of God still had to learn the Scriptures. And he did it by going to the synagogue. He didn't have a Bible at home to read. And so I, I could imagine he's in Jerusalem and he's got these great teachers who are learned of scriptures and he wants to hang around and talk because he's got this feeling that the Father has asked him to do something very important. And so he begins to ask them, tell me about the Messiah. I was in synagogue one day, I may, maybe when I was seven years old, I remember, I remember the rabbi talking, he was, he was reading from Micah. Where's the, where's the Messiah born? Bethlehem? Jesus, I was born, I was born in Bethlehem. Jesus wants to interact. I know something about how this is not just, I mean, this is for, for the whole world. What does Psalm 2 say about the father and his son and, and the son's inheritance? I'm sure a lot of people talked about Daniel. Can, can we talk more about these son of man passages? Who's the son of man Daniel's talking about? Or maybe, and if you read through the Gospels, Jesus is clearly working out of what we read in Isaiah. It is kind of a roadmap for his ministry. I can imagine Jesus, he's 12 years old, he's read these passages in Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11. Tell tell me about the child that's going to be born. The government's going to rest on his shoulder? Isn't he called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace? That's something to call a child. Who is this? And he's asking questions. Oh, and nobody, nobody took the suffering servant passages and made them messianic. Nobody did that. But you can almost imagine Jesus now. Now, if we keep reading through Isaiah, I know I've heard it read. I know what the Messiah is going to do. But isn't there somebody introduced as a servant in Isaiah 42 who's anointed by the Holy Spirit? 
And doesn't that lead into Isaiah 53? And, and this one who's anointed, he's going to bear the sins of the world. <laughs> he's going to suffer for the people. And I can just imagine that the rat, well, how are you connecting these things? No, and, and Jesus is just asking questions, trying to figure out what is this, what is this calling that the Father is inviting him into? I, again, we're just playing guesswork, but it's easy for me to see Jesus asking these questions as a 12-year-old getting a sense for who for what he's going to do. Well, Mary and Joseph make their way to the temple, and, and I'm not convinced that they think he's there. You know, they, they probably check every house, every, every place they can, every family, every acquaintance, and they might be going to the temple because it's a natural gathering place. Maybe they want to go ask, have you seen our son? Maybe they're just desperate at this point. We've searched for 24 hours. We can't find anything. Rabbis, will you pray? Will you pray with us? But they show up at the temple and unexpectedly, there Jesus is. And of course, again, this is the beauty of the story, right? Mary does what every parent would do. Immediate relief. Oh, you're okay. You're fine. And that lasts for maybe half a second. You're fine. Oh, you're not hurt. No bruises. I'm so mad at you. Why did you do this to us? Do you know how anxious and uncomfortable you made us, Jesus? What were you thinking? And I was thinking about this because this is, where, this is where Jesus is unique. I mean, we're talking about God and human flesh. And so he's not like every other 12-year-old, and so he carries this authority with him. Like if Jay was lost, my son, is 12, if he meandered off deliberately, intentionally for three days, I would be mad, and I would want an apology. I would almost push Jay until he's like, Dad, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was wrong. I was so stupid of me. I should have told somebody. But that's not what Jesus does here. And we're talking about Jesus, so we have to take him seriously. He offers no apology, and he makes no excuse. I mean, if you're a parent, and you find your kid, and the first thing they say to you is, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? Wouldn't that make you even angrier? I mean, that's hard to accept. It's mind-blowing for Mary. And this is the beginning of a lifelong journey of discipleship for Mary where Jesus is going to blow her mind. It's not an excuse or an apology. And Mary and Joseph don't immediately understand. It's difficult for them. I'm telling you, that should be a part of your journey. We're, this is a discipleship story. Jesus says things. They should be difficult for you sometimes. You are going to need to ponder and mull and think and reflect again and again over the words of Jesus. They're not, I keep trying to tell you this is not a journey of immediate gratification. You don't understand it, so you wrestle with it for a while. This is not the last time people would find Jesus difficult and hard to understand. So one of the things that I'm hoping to do throughout this next year is, is to, to help you read the Gospels as, as what I just said, a discipleship manual. The Gospels were written to the church to tell us who Jesus is and then to help us learn how to live like him. And, and, and one of the things that I hope we will do throughout the next year is to find our story in the stories of the characters we meet. There's plenty in Peter's journey of discipleship that we can relate to. Plenty of James and John that we can relate. There's plenty of Paul's story beyond the Gospels that we can relate to. There's plenty of Mary's story that we can relate to. And this morning, we're going to focus in a little bit on Mary. 
So if anyone knows their 12-year-old son, it's mom, right? Mary knew Jesus better than anyone else. And we're going to work a metaphor here. It's, It's a discipleship instruction story. Mary lost Jesus, and she couldn't find him anywhere. She searched, and she searched, and she couldn't find him. And then after three days, she finally finds him. And he's different. I mean, he seems different to her. The response is not what she expected. Something has changed, it seems, to Mary. And Mary was forced to reevaluate what she thought she knew about Jesus. Again, that's, that should be normal. If we're talking about an infinite God, you and I probably need to rethink things again and again and again. In fact, I heard someone say it this way, losing Jesus, seeking Jesus, finding Jesus, and then rethinking Jesus is how we make spiritual progress. It may be the only way we make spiritual progress. We, we lose Jesus, like Mary, we lose him. We, we, we think we know, we, we think we, our assumptions are right, we think we know right where he is and what he's doing, but then when we look to find him, he's not there, we lose him. But then we find him. What does Jesus himself say? Seek and you will find. <laughs> we seek and we find him, but then when we find him, we discover, oh, we need to rethink things a little bit. Jesus isn't who we always thought he was. You have to lose him, seek him out, find him, and he seems different, and you have to rethink things. That's spiritual progress. In other words, you're, you're a Christian, and you're saved, so you have Jesus. You understand? You have Jesus. You're a Christian, and you're saved. And I don't know if you've had this experience. I have. One day you wake up, and you just you can't seem to find him where you thought he was. You're saved, and you believe in Jesus, and you trust in Jesus. You believe in his crucifixion and his resurrection, but you can't find him anywhere. You had Jesus, but you lost him. I don't know if you've had that experience. You can't find him, so you start searching, and to your great relief, you find him. And you're kind of annoyed that you had to go looking. It was uncomfortable. You didn't enjoy it. You were rethinking things. And and then when you find him, he seems different, and he forces you to rethink things. That's part of what he's trying to do. You understand what that is? That's repentance. Repentance is turning around. It's rethinking. It's It's agreeing with God about reality. It's a lot of things. Jesus is forcing you and I to rethink who he is and what he's about. We have to rethink Jesus. You might say, I I thought he was this way, but I lost him. And when I found him, he seemed different. Now, of course, we know. We know. We know that Jesus doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is not really changing. What's changing is your assumption about who Jesus is, what he's like and what he's up to. But from your perspective on the journey, it seems to us like Jesus is changing. We don't like it. We don't, this, is, this is an uncomfortable thing. We don't like losing Jesus, but it's, but it's maybe one of the only ways to make spiritual progress. We have to lose our assumptions about Jesus to find him in a new way. And in finding God anew, you discover you've arrived in a new place and you're becoming a new person. This is part of the journey is the transformation. That's why we call it spiritual growth, spiritual progress. Sometimes you have to let go of old assumptions about Jesus and follow Jesus into new ways of doing the will of God. Mary has to learn this and she has to learn it several times, right? 
I mean, when Jesus begins his ministry in Capernaum, Mary's going to come with his brothers because they think he's out of his mind. They think he's crazy. And they're like, we're his family. We've got to rescue him from looking like an idiot. And so they show up and everybody who's listening to Jesus teach is like, hey, Jesus, your family's here. And Jesus says, my family is whoever does the will of God. You understand, Mary loses Jesus. She finds him. She thinks she's rescuing him. And now she has to rethink, what are you, I thought I was your, and again and again throughout Mary's life, she's got to rethink everything. She's learning about Jesus. (laughs) And of course, I've alluded to this, but this is part of the beauty of how I think Luke is structuring his gospel. She'll lose him in Jerusalem, right? She'll lose him on Good Friday. She'll lose him to the grave. And she'll, she'll, she'll find him again three days later on the third day, the resurrection of Jesus, and you know she has to rethink him then. <laughs> Risen from the dead. It's, it's all an essential part of the journey for spiritual progress. Without these difficult experiences, we don't understand. It's uncomfortable. It's delayed gratification. Without these difficult experiences, we simply stay the same. Not even realizing that Jesus is no longer really traveling in our company. If we can have enough spiritual sensitivity to notice when we've lost Jesus, then we can find him anew. He may be forcing us in uncomfortable ways to rethink things, but trust him. Because if you seek him, you'll find him. If you seek him with greater diligence, you'll find him anew. And in that process, as part of the process, it's necessary, that's where you're transformed. That's where the Holy Spirit does in you what you could never do for yourself. Now, I like to say this frequently. I think this is true. I don't know that Mary and Joseph expected to find Jesus in the temple. And I like to remind us again and again that Jesus, you will find him in unexpected places. We talk a lot about discipleship here at Crossview. If you ever join us in our discipleship pathway formed, I talk even more about this. But we do not have a one-size-fits-all approach to discipleship. We do not have a one-size-fits-all formula. Now, you'd rather have that, I know, because you want to know what's next. Okay, what's the next class on? What do I take next? I just don't, don't surprise me because that's uncomfortable. Don't give me something that's too big to chew on. Just give me little simple things, immediate gratification. Let me know what's coming next. Let me, let me do my check. That's not how Jesus works. He's going to force you to be uncomfortable. He's going to make you rethink things. And he might, he, he might do it in the most unexpected places. So we need to be alert. We need to be open. We need to be seeking Jesus. I think of Mary telling the story to Luke. And I think of her saying, I thought I really knew Jesus, but I, I needed to ponder this more, Luke. I, I needed to think about this. I, I was mad at him. I was so mad. I mean, at first I was relieved, but then I got so mad that he wasn't in the caravan. And, and when I found him, I expressed my anger, but he wasn't mad at me. <laughs> Who's this boy? I'm mad at him. Why isn't he mad back at me? He's recycling my anger into love. What's he doing? And I knew he was special, obviously. I know how he entered into the world. I knew he was special, but I think, Luke, I think I had just gotten so comfortable. I mean, I'm his mom. I think I just, I just got so comfortable around him, and I, I just assumed I knew who he was and what he was about, and then he does something like this, and I had to rethink everything. I mean, I'm telling the story this way because I know this happens, and, and I want you to be encouraged. You're not alone. 
If you feel like you're out on the journey and, and you've been walking a day and all of a sudden you realize Jesus isn't where I thought he was, that's okay. Maybe you're growing. You should celebrate that. Don't be worried. You're growing. You're being transformed. Go looking. Don't be apathetic. Don't be numb. Don't be dull. Go looking and seek. We, 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 we say across you, you will never drift into the Jesus way. You've got to be intentional. Go looking. Seek. And you'll find. Or maybe as I'm talking about this, you're feeling like it's been a long time since you've had this experience. And maybe this is a good chance to be challenged. Maybe you've gotten too comfortable and content with your assumptions about Jesus. Maybe you're just too comfortable. We talked about this a lot in our last series, but we talked about modern day Babylon. And how is modern day Babylon forming you? It's forming you to be comfortable. It's forming you to avoid discomfort. It's forming you for instant gratification. It's forming you to be numb on your edges. That's not good discipleship. Uh, you, can't be, you can't be anxiously seeking Jesus if you're numb, if you're comfortable in your assumptions. <laughs> you need to stay active. You need to be diligent. If, if you're spiritually numb, you simply won't notice that Jesus isn't present in a vibrant way like he was before. You'll just assume he's with the crowd. So that's the next thing I want to talk a little bit about. I want to talk about the crowds, the crowds that you and I have been a part of. I think this is worth thinking about in the day and age that we live in and some of the things that are happening maybe here across you, certainly broader in our American Christianity. But Mary assumed, doesn't she assume? She assumes that Jesus is in her group. They leave for Nazareth. She just assumes, I don't know where he is, but I assume he's with my group. He's with my people. (laughs) We all do this. I was thinking back, I've, since I really started walking with Jesus, I've probably been a part of five or six different Christian communities. And, and subconsciously, I never intentionally do this, but subconsciously, I always compare my group to other groups and assume Jesus is with me. Oh, it's cute that you think he's with you, but I know he's with me. When I was in college, I was a part of a Christian group. I went to a big college. There were a lot of Christian groups. I would have never said this, but I always assumed he's really, I mean, you guys are doing, he's really with us. But when I graduated, I was thankful that that's not true because I graduated, I get out in the working world, I realized the rest of the world doesn't operate like a college campus. (laughs) If Jesus was only with that college group, he was there, he was moving, but if he was only there, I'm in trouble. So I had to, I had to enter a new group. And it turns out Jesus was at this other church I landed in. And then I go to seminary, it's our denominational seminary, and of course we would all assume that there's other seminaries out there, but Jesus is mostly with our seminary, right? Of course he is. I'd read other professors, well, they're smart, but Jesus is mostly with my professors, right? Then I went to another church in our denomination for two years, associate pastor. It was a great church in Kansas City. And I remember it was the first time I was really like a full-time pastor, I remember thinking our church is the best. There's other churches in Kansas City, but certainly Jesus, has, he's with us. But they sent me out from that church. They were building me up to sending me out, so I was glad to find that the church I landed at, Jesus was there too. <laughs> Thank goodness. Sometimes we think he's only in our crowd. And that was, a, that was an interesting church to be a part of, and stuff happened there. Some of the stuff was good, some of it not so good. That's part of what led me to Crossview. But my point is, I'm sure you have your own stories. We inevitably assume that Jesus is always in our group. We own Jesus. He's one of us. And you may look back at your history and your story and the communities you've been a part of, and you may 
at points have made an alarming discovery like Mary makes. That all of a sudden you can't find Jesus in your group. You know Jesus has been in your group, but you can't find him now. You go looking. You're with your relatives, your friends. You can't find Jesus. (laughs) It's alarming. It's disconcerting. It's uncomfortable when you can't find Jesus in your group. Now, I'm not saying Jesus isn't there. I'm just saying you can't find him. And I know, I know this is the story of some of you because you shared your story. It's one of the reasons you're at Crossroads. Because you were a part of a group and Jesus was there and you were growing. And then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, where's Jesus? I'm confused. I mean, I think this is happening in a lot of places across our country right now. And, and this is what I'm, I know, and I know, because I've been a part of a few groups where there was some toxicity, and I, I know sometimes things just go afoul. But, but let me say this for this morning. It doesn't mean there's necessarily anything wrong with your old group. But maybe God has called you to move on because he's trying to help you grow in a new way in your understanding of him. That Jesus doesn't want you to get too settled into a long, comfortable understanding of him. You find yourself saying, I know Jesus, Jesus is like this. And then all of a sudden he does something that just doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit your paradigm. And like Mary, you get uncomfortable. He does something you didn't expect. It's part of discipleship. And I think it's easy to connect with Mary's discomfort, her anxiety. I mean, again, in the story, I... I, There can be few things that would create more anxiety in me than losing Jay for three days. Three days. (laughs) That'd be agony. And I know, again, that there's many people in America today that are going through a similar anxiety because they think they've lost Jesus. He doesn't seem to be in the group they've always known, whether it was the Jesus of their childhood or the Jesus of their family or the Jesus of the church community they grew up in. And part of their anxiety is because they're afraid they'll never find Jesus again. And if that's you, if you're in some kind of transitional season right now, I want you to hear this. If you seek him, you will find him. (laughs) Just keep looking. I mean, if Mary and Joseph are going to teach us some things and we're going to be encouraged because they struggle with the same things we struggle with, but we're going to learn from them as they follow Jesus, they kept looking. They didn't stop for three days. They were all in on finding him. If you seek him, you will find him. You may go through a difficult time and it may last longer than you want it to. And he may not be in that familiar place or he may not be as he's always seemed to be. But keep looking. You may even respond like Mary did. Your anxiety turns to relief and then quickly becomes anger. And instead of saying, as she could have, How could I have done this to you, Jesus? How could I have left you behind like that? I'm your mom. How could I have done that? Mary says, and you and I feel this, how could you do this to us? I mean, she's blaming Jesus. Now, Jesus accepts no blame. There's reasons for it. I do think blame is the game of the devil. But he accepts no blame. And he issues a gentle rebuke that says a lot in how he does it. But I was thinking about this in my own journey in the communities that I've been a part of, and some of them have hurt me in the past. We often want to blame people, like Mary. We want to blame. Mary blames Jesus. We want to blame God. We want to blame others. 
It's really tempting to blame people from your past when maybe they said things differently than you understand it now, or they taught you things, or just all kinds of stuff can happen in religious communities. And I want to invite you this morning not to be angry at God or angry at an old community that you were part of, because it doesn't do any good. It doesn't do any good to get upset at people. I learned this. Why did it take me 20 years to learn this? Why didn't they just teach me this when I, when I was first coming to Carlisle? Just, just be thankful that they pointed you to Jesus. I think I'm in a bit of that myself. I look back at some of the communities I've been a part of, and I get real frustrated about some things. I had to go, I had to make some serious mistakes because I was taught some bad things. I think I've learned a lot. I've followed Jesus. But I'm trying to not be mad or blame. Just be thankful that at that time in my life, they pointed me to Jesus and trust that Jesus really is authoring my spiritual journey. And if I stay on the journey, I'm going to end up exactly where I need to be. Be thankful and love people who played a part in your journey. Don't seek to blame. Just be thankful. Gratitude goes a long way. Or quickly, another way of saying this is spiritual growth happens when you and I take responsibility for our own lostness rather than blaming others. I mean, I think it's one of the things that's happening here. Mary says, why did you do this to us? And Jesus says, why are you looking for me? What are you searching for? Didn't you know I would be in my father's house? I talk about this a lot, but I love that the first thing that Jesus says is a question. You read through the Gospels and you will be amazed at how many questions, I forget, I, there's a book called Jesus is the Question. It's how many questions Jesus asks and how many questions Jesus gets asked and he responds with a question rather than an answer. He's, he's not a big answer man, he's a big question guy. And it's not because he's looking for information, it's not because he doesn't know. It's because he's usually trying to get us to move beyond whatever we're wrestling with and take responsibility for our own actions, for our own thoughts, for our own sins, for our own broken desires. Stop blaming this spiritual leader or this parent or this figure. You're not stuck where you are because of them. Now, maybe they hurt you, but take responsibility for your response too. You understand? It's important. He's trying to get us to take responsibility. And in a sense, maybe Jesus is saying, maybe he's saying that he's right where he's supposed to be. He's in his father's house. He's doing his father's work. He's not lost. You're lost and I'm lost. (laughs) I mean, maybe that's what Jesus is trying to get at. It seems to us that Jesus is lost. Jesus, I'm not lost. I'm right where I'm supposed to be. You're lost. Wake up. Now, I should, I should say, because I, when I talk about this stuff, and I didn't say this first service, but I probably should have. If we're talking about real spiritual abuse, like abuse of power and authority, uh, sometimes it, that, that, that involves real deeper conversations. You can't just brush blame off in those situations. I, I mean, I, I do think we've got to talk, but, but in general, some of the stuff that, that we get worked up about, practice gratitude, take responsibility. And some of the dark, abusive situations, uh, some of the, sometimes you really were a victim, and I, I get that. It's, that's not what I'm talking about here. But in general, in general, you and I need to be willing to take responsibility, to own our lostness, to own our sin. Sometimes we're going to feel like Jesus is lost, that we've lost Jesus, but we haven't lost him. 
If we keep seeking, we will find him in new ways. And he will invite us to rethink who he is and what he's about and what he's up to and what it means to do the will of God. That's why I'm going to pray and then we're going to celebrate communion. And I love communion as we talk about the mysteries of Jesus, the word made flesh. Communion is one of these mysteries. <laughs> Again, we confess more than we can explain. Somehow, some way, as we partake in the bread and the juice, we are participating in the very body and very blood of Jesus. We are participating in the crucifixion and the resurrection. We are going to confess our sins. We are going to die to ourselves. We're going to be crucified with Christ. And then, and then we're going to have a proclamation of assurance and we're going to be resurrected with Jesus and we're, going to get, we're not going to take grace cheaply, right? We're going to receive forgiveness with gratitude, aware of how much it cost Jesus and how much he took our place and took what we deserve. And we're going to live differently because we're so thankful that he's given us a new way to live. It's not Jesus who's lost, it's we're lost. We know he's not lost because we're going to feel his body and his blood. Mysteriously, I know, but, but it's we're lost. And Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. So, if you didn't grab communion elements, you can head out in the lobby and do it. If you're watching online and you didn't know we were doing communion, now is your chance to run into the kitchen and grab crackers or bread and whatever juice you have. We're going to celebrate communion and the worship team is going to get set up and I'm just going to pray. We're going to just take a few minutes. I'll just kind of guide us a little bit and then have a, a little bit of silence for you to reflect and have your own conversation with Jesus. And then we'll receive communion together as one body. If you bow your heads, Jesus, I am, I am tempted to try to overly guide this prayer time, <laughs> but I really do believe there's not a one-size-fits-all answer for us this morning, that we all bring different stories, different spiritual journeys, we're at different places on our spiritual journey. We bring different assumptions to the table of who we think you are, and so... Spirit of God, would you stir in us? We want to confess some sin to you. We want to confess some assumptions that we've made. We want to confess that we've been complacent, that we've been numb, that, that we've been content to assume you're in our crowd without really looking to see if you're there. We want to confess that maybe, maybe we've known Maybe we left Jerusalem and knew you weren't with the crowd, but we just, ah, it just was too much effort to go looking. I mean, maybe, this, maybe this goes back to before the holidays, before Christmas. We just, we just checked out. We just went in like autopilot. We just, we, it just feels like too much work to go looking for you. So we want to confess that. We've been lazy. We've been complacent. We've chosen comfort over courage. ask you, Spirit of God, to speak to us, to convict us. If there's any personal sins, we're just, just between us and you, just in our hearts and our minds, we're going to pause here and confess our sins. Remind ourselves why we need a Savior. Remind ourselves how important it is that you went to the cross for us. Hear our prayers, Jesus.
Amen. I'm going to invite you, if you will, to take the bread. Maybe you don't just put it in the cup, but you hold it in your hand. You haven't lost Jesus. In the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of And after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm going to invite you to stand and pray one more time, and then we'll sing. Uh, Jesus, whether we're at home or here in church, We're going to stand, and we're going to stand with conviction. We're going to stand with confidence. We stand with assurance that our sins have been forgiven. Maybe we walked in here with shame, with fear, with guilt. We're going to walk out assured that we have been forgiven, but we're not going to take that forgiveness and mercy lightly. We are a group of people that believes not just in the crucifixion, but also in the resurrection. That our old self gets to die and we get to be resurrected to new life and we want to live differently. I mean, if we confess sin, then we know how dangerous and destructive that is to our own souls and to to the lives of the people around us that we love and care for. So we want to live differently. We want to be a light in the darkness. So would we respond to the assurance of our forgiveness with great joy and gratitude for what we've been given? In your name we pray, amen.